One other short call in Harley Street, in which Eleanor received her brother's congratulations on their travelling so far towards Barton without any expense, and on Colonel Brandon's being to follow them to Cleveland in a day or two. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 42 to 46 of Sense and Sensibility. And as usual, we're going to start with 100-word summaries of the chapters. Do you have one? Marianne and Eleanor, followed by Colonel Brandon, begin their journey home by way of the Palmer's house. Marianne foolishly walks in damp grass and catches a cold. There are fears she may be dying. Colonel Brandon sets out to bring Mrs Dashwood. Meanwhile, Marianne begins to recover, but Willoughby arrives and explains his conduct to Eleanor. Colonel Brandon has told Mrs Dashwood of his love for Marianne and she strongly supports him. On return to Barton, Marianne acknowledges that her behaviour has been wrong and, comforted by learning of Willoughby's confession, plans a reformed life. You covered one element that I left out completely. What's Um, that? So mine is, Eleanor and Marianne go to Cleveland. Marianne catches a cold which develops into a serious illness. Mr and Mrs Palmer leave with the baby, but Mrs Jennings and Colonel Brandon remain. Eleanor begins to fear Marianne might die, and Colonel Brandon goes to bring Mrs Dashwood. Marianne passes the crisis, and just before Colonel Brandon and Mrs Dashwood arrive, Willoughby turns up to tell his side of the story to Eleanor. When Marianne recovers, they return to Barton, and she plans to lead a more rational life in the future. Eleanor tells her what Willoughby has said. Right, well, yours was a lot better than mine. Well, except I completely left out the bit about Colonel Brandon talking to Mrs Dashwood. All right, yes. Yes. So what were your first thoughts about these chapters? Well, I, I do think the account of Marianne's illness is very badly done. It's a bit like that time where she's mourning for Willoughby. I mean, it's a very nice account if you want to know the progress of a putrid sore throat <laughs> in 1813, the sort of symptoms and the sort of way it was treated. And if you want to know who was most sympathetic and who wasn't, fine. But if you want something that fits into the emotional story of Eleanor and Marianne, I mean, it, it's too confused. Yeah, it is very clinical. And yes, As you said, it's very precisely timetabled. I always remember it as being more dramatic than it actually is. And I actually suspect probably mostly when I reread this book, I skim this section because it's just really quite boring. Like I said, it's so precisely timetabled. I actually made a list of it this time, which I'd never done before, as to how many days it lasts. Oh, yes, she knows. And it's sort of not serious for most of it. So you've got sort of she's made these two twilight walks and then... On the fifth day after they arrive, she's got her bad cold. She gets up and sits by the fire. On the sixth day, she gets up, but then she goes back to bed, and that's when they send for the apothecary and when he says infection and Mrs Palmer and the baby leave. And then on day seven, she's no better. Yeah. And on day eight, she's no better. And on day nine, she's no better. But then on day 10, the apothecary says she's materially better, but by the evening, she's getting worse. And by midnight... She's so bad that that is when Colonel Brandon sets off and Eleanor is sitting up all night and she's also sent for the apothecary again. And at this stage she becomes delirious. Yes. It was after she became delirious that Eleanor... Eleanor got in such a panic and sent for Mr Harris, yes. 
left and then the next morning at 5am Mr Harris arrives and then yeah. three to four hours later he comes again and then by noon there's a slight improvement, by 12.30 there's more improvement, by 4pm Mr Harris arrives and says Marianne is out of danger and then by 6pm she's sleeping quietly, at 7pm Eleanor can leave the room and join Mrs Jennings for tea and then you've got Willoughby arriving at 8pm and Colonel Brandon and Mr Dashwood at about 10pm, I think. Yeah. So really it's only about maybe 12 to 14 hours. Yeah, I say only. Obviously that would be a terrible 12 to 14 hours for Eleanor. But only 12 to 14 hours where Eleanor and particularly the apothecary are really in serious concern for her life. Yes. I'm also interested in what are we supposed to think about this? Are we supposed to interpret it? that Eleanor is being a bit irresponsible in not taking as much notice of Mrs Jennings. But Um, then she is taking notice of the apothecary. But on the other hand, is this whole thing, including Marianne walking around in the countryside, you know, thrilled to be back in the country, is this just two irresponsible girls who are taking their health lightly? Well, my reading is that... Marianne is taking her health lightly, and I'll talk a bit more about that separately, but I think the description of how Colonel Brandon has been listening to Mrs Jennings and getting worried about it, I think you're meant to think that Mrs Jennings is the one who is being alarmist unnecessarily, and yes, the apothecary made a mistake, and Marianne did get much worse than he thought, but I don't think that is meant to vindicate Mrs Jennings... Because after all, Mrs Jennings has been saying all along she's going to die, and she doesn't die. Yes. But she does get suddenly much worse, because she had three days of being sick with a putrid tendency, but not delirious, not the apothecary saying you should send her Well, obviously not with this this really high temperature. And, of course, it's quite interesting. They're taking her pulse all the time, Mm. but there's no real mention of temperature, you know, which Mm. are the two things you think they'd be looking for. Mm. It's just perhaps an interesting point about where medical knowledge was. Mm. And just one other thing while we're talking about Marianne's illness. I just was slightly surprised. There she is in that delirium and she's worrying her mother won't go back in time. She might die before she sees her mother. Not a mention of Willoughby. He's been so central to her for the last few months. Mm. I didn't think of that. I wonder if that's why, because she says her mother mustn't go through London. Yeah. And... It would be crazy for her mother to go through London from Barton. But if she had sort of regressed and was thinking they were at Norland, it would be longer, but you could go through I, London I, rather than direct. I don't know why she'd think they were back at Norland. Oh, well, she could, yes. Yeah. She could but, be uh, regressing to childhood, yeah. yes. Two other things actually struck me with this, that um, particularly on this careful reread, and my memory may have been influenced by how the adaptations have treated this, is, first of all, the incredibly mundane and prosaic way Marianne gets sick. She's walked around the grounds, she's walked in wet grass, and she hasn't changed her shoes and her stockings. She hasn't been caught out in the rain, there hasn't been a gale, there hasn't been terrible weather, it's just wet grass. Mm. Now, Joan Austen is wetting the place. See, she goes out when she arrives mm. and she has this lovely walk and she goes up to the little temple and then she comes back and she plans to go out the next day and she can't. It says, 
With great surprise, therefore, did she find herself prevented by a settled rain from going out again after dinner. So yes, that night she can't go out walking, but the next two nights are nice. So she can go out walking, but the ground's still wet. Yes. Well, so she's, is... she, so she hasn't dramatically gone out into the rain. She's only gone out when it's fine, but the grass is still wet. Another thing that I think is particularly striking in these chapters, and, and again, it's the very clinical way it's described, is we see Eleanor being concerned that by delaying sending for her mother, she might have her mother might not arrive in time yes. but what we don't get is any sense of grief from Eleanor that her sister might die and when you think about it it's less than 18 months since her father died yes so again I guess it's like you've said before just that one of those things Jane Austen doesn't really write about at least not at this stage of her career is extreme grief because you just don't get any sense from Eleanor of personal grief about the loss of Marianne. Yes. You get the stress of dealing with Marianne's delirium. You get the concern that she didn't send for her mother in time. But you don't get any sense of, I'm going to lose my dearest sister. But again, it's a bit the same as the way she dealt with Marianne when Marianne was grieving for Willoughby. No account of Marianne's internal feelings. Mm. Sense and sensibility is a lot nicer than we're making it sound. <laughs> well, I think it is just such a very patchy book. Yes. There are some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful bits in it. And yes. then there are some bits that are necessary for the plot and you kind of remember them in a much more minimalist way and it's not till you sit down and read them in detail that you realise actually they're kind of a bit of a slog to get through. Yes. One of the things I wanted to say is poor Colonel Brandon. What on earth does he do with himself all day long? There he is in somebody else's house. They're not there to entertain him. We know there's a billiard room because Mr Palmer was playing billiards <laughs> when he shouldn't have. But he's not there to play billiards. And yet Colonel Brandon doesn't even go to bed early. Yes. He knows he's going to be up late. Yes. What did he do yes. all day long? Yes, we know in the evenings he played PK with Mrs Jennings. Yes. But yeah, during the day, well, he would have had his horse with him, so I suppose he could have gone out riding. And just brooded. Yes, he yes. could have gone out riding and brooding, <laughs> a bit like Marianne walking and brooding, yeah. yes. And I suppose, well, I imagine Mr Palmer gets the newspaper delivered every day, so he would read the newspaper. Mr Palmer has a library. We don't know how extensive it is. But, but, but still, but this is this, this same with Colonel Brandon. Now, there he was hanging around the Middletons for mm. so long, and here he is still stuck somewhere with yeah. nothing really to do and and no company except Mrs Jennings. Mm. Probably in those first few days, though, Eleanor probably isn't sitting with Marianne all day, every day. No. So he can talk to Eleanor, maybe they go for walks together. But even so, for people who are supposed to be busy and have other things in their lives, yeah. he doesn't do much. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Willoughby later, so I think maybe we should hold discussion about his arrival and his telling the story yep exactly um, well I've still got this one that I keep nagging on about about the whole plot structure which plot has she chosen and this is the one again where I think you don't see this as a problem but it haunts me because I like looking at these archetypal plots going there. Yeah. And what we've got here is Marianne going through the end of what is likely to happen to the betrayed heroine. Mm. She's really sick. She might die. 
but you come to the end and pow, we turn straight round, we've suddenly come back to the cautionary tale. Mm. We've had two girls and we've been shown she's done wrong and with chapter 46 we come into the sort of I am so sorry, I've done the wrong thing. Well, as we've said, I see that cautionary tale not as a separate plot but as an, as an umbrella plot. Again, as I think you may have said before, we do see Marianne's extreme youth and enthusiasms. So suddenly she's all about, I'm going to be rational, I'm going to read six hours oh, a day, I mean, I'm going to devote my life to the family. But it's lovely, that latter bit. And yes, to John, to Fanny, yes, even to them, little as they deserve, I had given less than their due. Yes. <laughs> she's really abasing herself there. <laughs> but it is just so repentance. And what you also get is that little bit where she says, my illness had been entirely brought on by myself by such negligence of my own health, which it well, I suppose it was. Well, the walking out in the wet and then not changing her shoes and stockings, I think that is something that if there'd been no Willoughby anywhere in the picture and they'd been at Cleveland, Marion would have done that anyway. Yeah, but she's sort of so strong about it. The interesting thing is, I wonder at my recovery, wonder that the very eagerness of my desire to live, to have time for atonement to my God and to you all, did not kill me at once. And you've got, again, one of those very, very slight Jane Austen references to religion. Yeah. Now, that reserve thing, but that religion is there under it all. So you're saying even though she doesn't talk about religion very often, it's little bits like this that do tell us that... It's just something underlying that she doesn't need to talk about because it's a given, it's there. Yes, but that because of their kind of reserve, they don't mention it. Mm. Oh, no, and one other tiny little bit that comes in where Eleanor is suddenly surprised. Her mother says, I am so happy, she's better. And then Eleanor is a bit hurt that her mother hasn't hasn't recognised that she could be suffering. Yes, But again, I mean, in a sort of a way, not Jane Austen saying, but looking at it from outside, well, if she won't tell anybody she's feeling bad, she's only got herself to blame Mm. if they they won't sympathise with her. Although, having said that, this is the first time her mother has seen her since it happened. It would be nice if her mother had at least said in passing, are you okay with Edward? And if Eleanor had said, yes, I'm fine, then... No, exactly, you feel she should have. Marianne is aware of it. In that various long speeches, Marianne saying, I should have been worried about you and I only worried about myself. Of course, this is the bit that leads into what infuriates you so much about Mrs Dashwood pushing Marianne and Colonel Brandon together. And it really is quite overt here where she says to Eleanor, had I sat down to wish for any possible good to my family, I should have fixed on Colonel Brandon's marrying one of you, and I believe Marianne will be the most happy with him of the two. His regard for her infinitely surpassing anything Willoughby ever felt. And then after that, she says, if she lived as I trusted she might, my greatest happiness would lie in promoting their marriage. And since our arrival, since our delightful security, I have repeated it to him more fully, had given him every encouragement in my power. She really, really is telling Colonel Brandon to go for it and then... Well, I told you that that piece, the first time I reread it this time through, I was really quite shocked. Mm. Mrs Dashwood is going to push Marianne into that marriage yeah. if she can. Yeah. 
So what was your favourite sentence from the chapters? Well, the favourite sentence I've picked has got 117 words in it. <laughs> but it also has a semicolon. Yep. And so I'm leaving out what was before the semicolon. And okay. it has a dash. And a lot goes on after that dash. So I'll read the middle bit and then probably what comes after the okay. dash. Yep. Right. They've just arrived in Cleveland. The rest of the morning was easily whiled away in lounging round the kitchen garden, examining the bloom upon its walls and listening to the gardener's lamentation upon blights. In dawdling through the greenhouse, where the loss of her favourite plants, unwarily exposed and nipped by the lingering frost, raised the laughter of Charlotte. And then we come to this dash where it says, and in visiting her poultry yard, where in the disappointed hopes of her dairy maid, by hens forsaking their nests, or being stolen by a fox, or in the rapid decrease of a promising young brood, she found fresh sources of merriment. That's the end of the sentence. Okay, yes. yes, it does give you a, such a picture of Charlotte. Yes, but it's also Jane Austen being a bit sharper here then she is in a lot of places, not exactly going back to the juvenilia. But at the same time, and in around the same place, she's also talking about Charlotte, Eleanor thinks that nothing was wanting on Mrs Palmer's side that constant and friendly good humour could do to make them feel themselves welcome. Eleanor could have forgiven everything but her laugh. Yes. So she's not saying Charlotte is a terrible person. She's basically a very good-natured person, but it's this sort of making... Slight grotesques of people. Yes. And in this one, she makes grotesques of people she quite likes. Yeah. I mean, by Pride and Prejudice, the grotesques are people that you've got no sympathy for, like Lady Catherine and Mr Collins. Mm. Again, and I think we've talked about this before, is the fact that they start out as grotesques. And the grotesque does remain all the way through, but you get this turnaround in... Certainly Mrs Jennings from London through to here, but then yeah. Mr Palmer, these are the chapters where you suddenly get the turnaround in Mr Palmer. The but... thing I found interesting with this is the extent that she's come back and she's niggling about the Palmers because she makes that remark about Mr Palmer playing billiards when he should be getting on with his work. <laughs> <laughs> what I think it's doing is... She's presenting them as grotesques. She's showing their essential good nature that they are in many ways worthy people, but also Eleanor is feeling herself comfortably superior to them. So she could forgive Charlotte anything except her laugh. And then with Mr Palmer, she finds she likes him much more here at home than she had elsewhere, yeah. much better than she had expected. But her heart was not sorry that she could like him no more. But the other thing is the Palmers are really... They invite these two girls to stay at the house and within three days, they're, they're having off. to leave the house and go and stay with Mr. Palmer's relative on the other side of Bath yeah. because of their baby. And oh, oh, I mean, I, there's no... And, and yet there's no question in their minds that they are not going to turn the girls out. The only reason Mr. Palmer is willing to leave is because he knows Mrs. Jennings and Colonel Brandon are there. So we do get this picture that, yes, he has faults. But at the same time, he has virtues as well. Could you imagine John and Fanny oh. <laughs> behaving like that? No, <laughs> not even. They would have put them in a carriage and said, well, you know, go home, go yeah. home. Yeah. Okay. And well, what about yours? Well, my favourite sentence is Mrs Dashwood 
is a line by Mrs. Dashwood, but there's also a follow-up authorial phrase that I want to include. It's cheating slightly. Yeah. It's when Mrs. Dashwood has been talking about how wonderful Colonel Brandon is, and then she says about Willoughby, there was always a something, if you remember, in Willoughby's eyes at times, which I did not like, which you laugh at. But what I think really makes me laugh at that line is the follow-up authorial line, <laughs> Eleanor could not remember it. Yes. It's, it is so dry and so completely true that, and but also gives you a sort of sort of insight into Eleanor is now taking more and more superior line to her mother. She's taking a step back and finding her slightly comic. I think she always did, but I think in this instance it does go on to say, but her mother without waiting for her assent. So Eleanor isn't actually going to argue with her mother oh, about no, it. No. She's just she's falling more and more into she she accepts some of the things her mother says. Yes. we're talking about this time is Willoughby. There's sort of a Willoughby equivalent in most of the novels. The superficially charming alternative to the hero who is in fact almost invariably more charming than the hero. So in Pride and Prejudice we've got Wickham. In Mansfield Park we've got Henry Crawford. Who is by far the most charming yeah, of, of this character. Yeah. Yeah. In Emma we've got Frank Churchill and then in Persuasion we've got Mr Elliot. Not really an example in Northanger Abbey because the equivalent role is probably played by John Thorpe, who is anything <laughs> Who's but so charming. awful. Yes. yes, but I just thought it's worth looking at them as a group because they fill the same role and they have superficial similarities, but they're so different. Oh, they're completely different yeah. people, and different characters, and different reasons why we disapprove of yeah. them. Different flaws. Yeah, and yet the one thing they all have in common is charm. Yes. To a greater or lesser extent, they're all charming, they're all good company. So at the one extreme, you've got Wickham and Mr Elliot, who, well, Wickham's, I think, pretty much completely a crook, but Mr Elliot is not all that much better, really. And then at the other end, you've got the, Frank Churchill is a bit of a lightweight. Cool. Henry Crawford, he is probably the most complex and interesting of all of them. When Willoughby appears, you don't get any initial real strong sense that there's something wrong with him. We're not like Mrs. Dashwood seeing something the matter with his eyes (laughs) at the beginning. Yeah, Yeah, we found when we were reading it this time, there were a couple of maybe slight warning bells in some of the way he talked and his relationship with Marianne. But in general, he comes across as he's charming, he's nice, he's enjoyable. He's intelligent and he's well-read and he's very young. Yeah. And then up until now, we haven't really known what his motivations were for anything he did from the moment he left Barton and everything he's done since then we haven't known his motivations until these chapters where he comes and talks to Eleanor and that's why we're talking about him in this episode because this is where I think the real Willoughby is revealed both in what he says but also in how he says it. In a sense We've been given a picture of another Willoughby. We've been given a picture of a Willoughby almost as bad as Wickham until we come up to this. Yes, but then in these scenes, we get his perspective on why he did it and we realise that, in essence, he's selfish, he's somewhat superficial. It's mainly just he's selfish. 
I suppose the picture I get of him, rather than call it selfish, is he's somebody who can't resist it. If a girl sort of indicates that she thinks he's attractive and she's got something going for her, he responds very hard. Marianne starts talking to him with her enthusiasm. He responds completely, even though it's just a game to him at the beginning. Yeah. So you get the impression it must have been the same with young Eliza. And probably also with the woman he married. Well, yes, you've got to say he's come across as engaging on the page, but to have all these women basically throwing themselves at him, he must have been amazingly good-looking and amazingly charming. Maybe selfish was the wrong word, but he's someone who just wants his life to be easy. And when his aunt says she's not giving him any money, he panics. He's not prepared, which Mrs Jennings says he should, to just buckle down and not spend as much money and change his lifestyle and marry Marianne. That's not what he thinks. He wants his easy life, and so he will marry for money to maintain that easy life. So it is superficial and selfish, but not evil, not not wicked in the way Marianne had been thinking of him. No, I suppose the one thing you could say was wicked. He behaved badly to Marianne, but he really behaved dreadfully to Eliza. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that is just dreadful. Mm. And not a thing will he do. He's left her entirely to what Colonel Brandon decides to do for yes. her. If Colonel Brandon decided to send her out to be somebody's wet nurse, well, he's not going to stop it. Yeah. She, he could have made Eliza a servant. He could have done anything. Mm. And he doesn't care. Now, that is the really dreadful thing with Willoughby. Mm, Yeah. What I felt like talking about at some point is the comparison between Miss Grey and Lucy Steele. They're two women who are perfectly prepared to marry a man they know doesn't care about them, in fact cares about somebody else, and they don't care he's what they want. Yeah. And... Lucy's going for it for security, but she's going for it for this attractive man. Mm. And in a sort of a way, she fits into this pattern, I've just been thinking about it, of these women with plenty of money who have a choice. And it's almost the toy boy thing. Uh I've got this money, I can get the man I want. Okay, he might want me, but I'm the one with the money. I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And... You can get different examples, but there's the one in Jane Austen in the Watsons Mm. where the heroine of the Watsons had an aunt who was left all her money by her husband when she died and she fell for some Irish soldier. Yeah. And she's not prepared to do anything for her niece anymore. Mm. And I've just been rereading a trollop called Can You Forgive Her, which has, again, I mean, a widow, not the age of Miss Grey. But she's got all this money and she decides she'll marry an army captain because he's fun to have around. Mm -hmm. And she's got it all worked out, exactly how she's going to control him, how she's going to dole out the money to Mm. him. And and I would think Miss Grey, she might have spelled it all out. In her mind, she knows that there's no way that Willoughby's going to get his hands on her money. But, of course, he's bringing a lot more than these sort of real toy boy types. Well, he's bringing property. But he's bringing his debts as well. But, I mean, on the other hand, if she wants him to be nice, she's going to have to drive a fine line of keeping him the attractive Willoughby. Yeah. 
And what do you think is going to happen with him afterwards? Well, it does say at the end, he lived to exert and frequently to enjoy himself. His wife was not always out of humour, nor his home always uncomfortable, and in his breed of horses and dogs and in sporting of every kind, he found no inconsiderable degree of domestic felicity. It's a better picture than, say, Lydia and Wickham's marriage. Yeah, because they've got money. Well, the other thing, just coming back to him telling his story in these chapters, yeah. it's, you know, we've had this bit of a slog through Marianne's illness. This is, in some ways, an info dump, but it's such a character-revealing info dump because we get his side of the story, but we get his perception of his side of the story, which is very much I've been hard done by. For a start, I noticed Eleanor and Marianne at different times use the word wicked in connection with Willoughby. Whereas he says, though I have always been a blockhead, I have not always been a rascal. He's using all these words with sort of affectionate or romantic undertones. Where there's a sort of a hidden forgiveness somewhere in it. And he uses scoundrel and rogue, both of which I think have that... Glamorous, make him more glamorous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, they they bring him into being the sort of classic hero of this sort of story. I mean, reading Helena Kelly, she makes this quite interesting point that he was like the hero of Udolfo, who's called Valancourt. And she points out quite a lot of similarities Uh between them. And he's in that account of himself that's how he's seeing yeah. himself yeah he's wickeder than he actually was yes but also the whole thing is yes I did the wrong thing but these were the circumstances and I may have done the wrong thing but I was hard done by as well oh well, just because yeah. I was a villain doesn't make her a saint and also yeah he's saying I've forgotten I didn't leave Eliza my direction and with common sense she could have found it well she's a 16 year old girl yeah And what did he think? Well, I suppose the implication is he didn't know she was pregnant. Yeah. But what would he have done if he had? Yeah. He could have done what Mrs Smith suggested. Well, he wouldn't have done that. (laughs) Well, we know that because he refused Mrs Smith. But again, just going to his attractiveness is Eleanor's feelings as he's telling this story. She keeps on being sucked in by him and then stepping back and realising she's been sucked in and that if he wasn't so attractive, she probably wouldn't be giving him this credit. But in spite of that, he must be such a magnetic person to be pulling her in all the time. And at one point, it even says, and for a moment, she wished Willoughby a widower. So throughout the whole thing, she's sort of for him and then stepping back and then sucked in again and then stepping back again. But I think that is the most extreme, that for a moment she wishes him a widower. But the other thing is, would it ever have worked with Marianne? What sort of a husband would he be for Marianne? Even though he may have inherited all that wife's money. Yeah. He's simply not moral enough for Marianne. Yeah. I think that's the point, that there's well, I, no way he'd be scrupulous enough for Marianne. Yeah. I think you could say that if he married Marianne, they would probably live together mostly in the country because he likes his hunting and his dogs and his horses and Marianne likes the country and they'd have their books and their music. If they had lots of money, lots of money straight away, not lots of money in the future, Yes, maybe it would have worked okay because he would have been happy with Marianne and yes they're operating on a different moral compass but maybe with the life they would lead comfortable with that money I, I don't know can he tie himself down to one woman yeah Give- but would Marianne have found him 
as satisfying when she was 25, 26, 27 as she did when she was 18. True. Because she's obviously going to mature. She'll still outgrow him. Yeah. With the possible exception of Marianne, he doesn't actually care about anyone else's feelings. He certainly doesn't care about Eliza's feelings. He doesn't care about Colonel Brandon's feelings. He doesn't care about his wife's feelings. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> he cares I think about he, himself. I think he and his wife are fairly evenly matched yeah. because <laughs> I think she knows what she's doing. Mm. Coming back to what I said at the beginning, this collection of attractive but not the hero young men and where he sits in the spectrum. Um, Second bottom. Yeah, well, except that just with the way so many women have fallen for him, he could well be meant to be, in some ways, the most attractive, with the possible exception of Henry Crawford. Henry Crawford comes across the page as more attractive because we have a more skilled Jane Austen writing him. Yeah. But possibly that is what she was trying for with Willoughby, someone who just is magnetic when you talk to him. But she was much more subtle with Henry Crawford because he's small and he's not terribly yes. good-looking. <laughs> yes, true. Well, what I'm going to talk about in the historical background bit this time is apothecaries, or particularly perhaps medical practitioners in Jane Austen's time. Yep. Because at that date, there were three different strands of medical practitioner, and they were supposed to be in a sort of a hierarchy. First of all, there were the physicians who were people who presumably had some sort of university degree. Whether they'd been through training, I don't know. Nobody seems to be very good at explaining what they actually did. And there weren't all that many of them. But they had their professional association, a Royal College of Physicians. They had a royal charter to practice and if you belonged to them, you were claiming to have some pretty good expertise. And theoretically, if you claimed to be a physician and didn't belong, perhaps you could be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And the physicians basically looked at people and decided what was wrong with them and told lesser practitioners what to do about it. And then below them were the surgeons. And the surgeons had started off as part of a sort of city guild, which was the company of barbers. But they broke away from them in 1745 and became the company of surgeons. And by 1800, they had formed themselves into what they called the Royal College of Surgeons. And the point with surgeons was that they were very hands-on. They did all the operations. They cut off arms and legs. They did all the files sort of without anaesthetic operations that were available then. And what about things like bloodletting? That was the surgeons. Okay. And before they split off from the barbers, was it a case of as a barber you could cut hair or you could let blood? That's right. But by 1745 they definitely separated. Mm -hmm. And then beyond them were the apothecaries. And they had started off as part of the grocers, you know, selling herbs, selling medicines, that sort of thing. But they formed themselves into the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries as far back as 1615, and they were definitely concerned only with medicines. And theoretically, 
they were only supposed to dispense for the physicians. The physicians were supposed to look at sick people, say, you need a such and such, go and ask the apothecary for it. Mm -hmm. But by the time we get up to 1800, you know, as you can see from Jane Austen, they were being called in to do their own prescribing. And in fact, they had a lot of their own expertise and knowledge and this London Worshipful Society had its own sort of magnificent house which is called Apothecaries Hall and is still there. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly interested in the apothecaries because seven or eight years ago I spent a certain amount of time actually working in their archives and looking through their ancient minute books. Okay. But they also had a great big hall underneath and they ran a sort of trading company where they imported or they collected herbs and things from all over the world and sold them to apothecaries. And then they also had another sort of business going which was called the Navy Stock where they collected herbs and medicines from all over the world and sold them to the Navy for use by surgeons who were on the ships. But anyway, the apothecaries had quite an elaborate apprenticeship system. I'm talking mainly about the London group now because other people might have done it differently, but for them, they had these books and they noted down all the people who were appointed as apprentices to their members who were called freemen of the society. And it was meant to last five years and this is something I actually took from their minutes. In 1819, it was not cheap to be apprenticed as an apothecary. Fathers who were not apothecaries paid anything from £100 to £400 to apprentice a son to an apothecary. The apprentices lived with them. They went out with them on all their rounds. They were given instruction and after five years then if the person whom they were apprenticed to said they were competent they then could become say a freeman of this society. I mean a lot of apothecaries weren't eligible for the worshipful society but there were practicing apothecaries all over the country who were taking on apprentices and passing on their knowledge to them and of course they taught them quite a bit of medicine and as we know with Jane Austen, they did quite a lot of diagnosis. So would that be particularly the case in the country, whereas in London there would be lots of physicians around, but in the country there might just be an apothecary? In fact, very few of the apothecaries who were around were simply apothecaries. By the mid to late 18th century, a lot of them were calling themselves surgeon apothecaries which would mean they'd been apprenticed to someone who had had training as a surgeon and as an apothecary. So a surgeon apothecary would would basically both give a medicine and do bloodletting? Well, any sort of surgery and set bones and bind up wounds and deal with amputations. But anyway, somebody in the 1780s made a list of how many surgeon apothecaries, physicians and surgeons there were in the various counties and I've copied them down here. In Somerset there were 93 surgeon apothecaries, there were 29 physicians and 18 surgeons. Mm -hmm. 
So the surgeon apothecaries outnumbered them by a lot. Mm. In Devonshire, there were 117 surgeon apothecaries, only 11 physicians and 8 surgeons. Mm -hmm. So already the general practitioner had these two sets of knowledge, the surgeon knowledge and the apothecary knowledge. And the apothecary that came to look after Marianne very likely was a surgeon apothecary rather than one or the other. Mm -hmm. The medicines the apothecaries did. So it says in the footnotes of my Cambridge edition, and I think this is before they call the apothecary, when everyone is giving their own advice to Marianne, and it talks about cordials, which the footnote to my book says were aromatic medicines generally homemade with directions for making them found in countless anonymous books. And a typical cordial for Marianne's milder symptoms, so before they called the apothecary, might be the following, which was from the Cheap, Sure and Ready Guide to Health, 1742, which was sherry, mirabilis water, syrup of quinces, oil of cloves and nutmegs with venice treacle to strengthen the stomach in vomiting and loss of appetite. So the apothecaries presumably had something a bit more efficacious than that. And Was it based on research or was it just based on... I presume it was based on more like trial and error, but yeah. you know, you'd get people taking clinical notes. Yeah. It would have been based on a whole series of apothecaries taking clinical notes, writing up their results. Even by the time of 1800, there were a lot of people doing research, doing publishing, a lot even holding series of lectures and all the local apothecaries would come. They were reading, they were trying themselves. There was a lot of medical knowledge being pooled at this stage, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't formalised yet into proper syllabuses. And I think you said that the apothecaries had access to a wider range of herbs? Oh, Oh, the apothecaries had, underneath their hall, they ran these two trading companies. And they also had something called the Chelsea Physic Garden where they grew a whole lot of very specialised herbs Mm -hmm. that would have come from all over the country. Uh And again, they would have had access to that or known how to buy them. And then in their own laboratories, they would be making them, using their mortar and pestles and that sort of thing and deciding on the proportions and grinding them up and some of them they would dissolve in water and others they would dissolve in various forms of alcohol. They were starting to sort of do more and more research but their research was sort of observation research. You tried this and it worked. Can we work out why it worked? Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can, perhaps we can't but we know it worked. Yeah and when they talk about infection and she takes the baby away because of fear of infection but this was before germ theory were they still thinking that it was spread by smell or what was the perception well the perception was everybody knew about infection if you go near people who are sick you'll pick it up but was it waterborne or is it airborne or is it miasma? Yeah. And they weren't even beginning to argue right. at this stage. But, you know, people, after all so, the big so plagues, they... and people knew all about, and if all... you go near people with it, you'll get it. Yeah. Okay. But not necessarily knowing about the waterborne ones. Yeah. And obviously they didn't have the concept of hand washing or anything like that at that stage. It hadn't started yeah. properly.
there are a couple of areas I'd like to focus on with the adaptations and modernizations this week. The first is the circumstances leading to Marianne's illness. And then I'd also like to talk a bit about Willoughby's visit. And then finally, look at how they all build up the relationship with Colonel Brandon during Marianne's recovery, which of course is something that just doesn't occur in the book at all. No, the only relationship you get there is the relationship between Mrs Dashwood and Colonel Brandon. (laughs) So I was talking earlier about how Marianne getting sick in the book is really very prosaic and mundane. And that is typically not entirely how it's treated in the various adaptations. In the 1971 miniseries with Joanna David and Kieran Madden, and also in the 1981 miniseries with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, the same thing happens. You see Marianne looking unwell or coughing a bit in the carriage going to Cleveland, and then after they arrive at Cleveland, before she's even gone up to her room, she faints. Nothing to do with going out and getting wet feet, she just faints, and that's how the illness starts. So there are ditching any possibility of it being her fault. Yes, but the 1995 version and most of the ones that come after it, there's a huge change. I think this actually also connects with what you were saying a little while ago about the lack of causation between what Marianne does in terms of Willoughby and what happens to her. Because, you know, we were saying the walking around and not taking her shoes and stockings off is something that she would have done pre-Willoughby as well, most likely. Yes. But in the 1995 version with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet, they arrive at Cleveland and they've had a terrible journey over because Mrs. Palmer has talked the whole way. And Marianne says she wants to go for a walk. And she starts to walk and it starts to rain. In this one, Coombe Magnet is much closer and you can actually see it from the top of their hill. And Almost hypnotically, she starts to walk in that direction and the rain is really teeming down and then she gets to the top of the hill and she sees Coombe Magna and she starts reciting the Shakespeare sonnet that she and Willoughby read back at the beginning. Oh, which one was that? Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds of an Impediment, I think. And then Colonel Brandon goes out into the rain and finds her and picks her up and carries her back. So it's incredibly dramatic and you have this parallel with the earlier scene where Willoughby picked her up and brought her back. In in a storm. Yeah, in in a storm. So what I find interesting is since then, adaptations and modernisations have done a very similar thing. And I don't know whether it's because of the amount of influence this 1995 version has, because I think it does in some cases have a substantial amount of influence on later versions. So what you have in the... 2008 version with Hattie Morahan and Charity Wakefield is that Marianne is out sort of communing with the storm just standing there and letting the rain rain on her and she's getting flashbacks to the scene they had with her and Willoughby at Allenham yes so again the reason she's dramatically out in the rain is because of her feelings for Willoughby and once again Colonel Brandon goes out. In this case, he jumps on his horse and goes galloping out to try and find her. She's collapsed. He picks her up. He carries her home. Presumably his horse just followed him. (laughs) So again, it's much more dramatic than I think Jane Austen would ever have written. But it does have this parallel with the earlier scene. But that is also picked up in those modernisations that involve Marianne getting sick, which not all of them do. In the Bollywood version... 
the Marianne character who's called Minakshi. She's walking through the rain and this is simultaneous with the Willoughby equivalent getting married. You have cuts between her walking through the rain and Willoughby and his fiance getting married and walking out into the rain. And yeah, she's sort of obviously still distraught by it. She's just walking through the rain, not doing anything to protect herself. And then she falls into an open manhole cover. But once again, the Colonel Brandon equivalent, who's called Major Barlet in this case, sees her and he hauls her out of this manhole and then cuts to her in hospital. So once again, you have a much more dramatic situation. It's tied with Willoughby and you have Colonel Brandon doing the rescuing. Which it fits in the sense that Jane Austen had him there all the time. Yes. He, he was pretty useless. Yeah, but the thing is, the cause for the illness in that case was not anything that she needed rescuing from. No. And then another one is from Prada to Nada. In this instance, they've been at a party and that's where she suddenly discovered that the Willoughby equivalent is married. And she goes out and she gets in her car and she's not thinking and she's in a car accident and she's taken to hospital. So there's no Brandon connection at that point, but there is still the causal relationship with Willoughby. And the last example is in the web series Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton. Marianne is still not quite herself after being dumped by Will and she's gone out for a walk and it started to rain and when Brandon drops in and discovers she's out in the rain, he phones her, it goes straight to voicemail, he goes out to find her and again he walks back into the room carrying her all wet. And I just think not necessarily all but that much similarity I think in at least some cases that 1995 version had some long-ranging influence. Now I was saying earlier that in the book you don't get much of Eleanor's emotional response to Marianne's illness Mm -hmm. but that is something that most of the adaptations and modernizations do. So for example in the 1971 version when Their mother has arrived and Eleanor comes out of the room. She breaks down in tears. There's nothing so much like that in the 1981 version. But in the 1995 version, Emma Thompson in her script really ramped it up quite a lot. Part of the feedback she was getting from the production team was they really wanted to feel that the central relationship in this book is between the two sisters. So she has a scene that is, I think, another case of her moving very far from what Jane Austen originally wrote, which is Eleanor crying and telling Marianne to get better and then saying, I cannot do without you, do not leave me alone. My only feeling with that is that bond between the sisters didn't come out as strongly. There was certainly lots of preparation to show they have a very loving relationship, but the I cannot do without you, don't leave me alone gives the impression to me that Marianne is the most important member of her family. Not that she loves all of them and yes. she doesn't want to lose any of them. So yeah. I, I just felt that didn't yeah. quite sit right. But just it strikes me that the book isn't set up for them being all in all to one another. No, it's not. You could easily have a book where they were the two against the world. Mm. But it's not that sort of book. They've got their mother and Margaret. Well, I think that is something that some of the adaptations and many of the modernisations go beyond the book and maybe not quite the two of them against the world, though it is in some cases, but certainly do present it as being about the relationship between the two sisters. So, Whereas, in fact, in the book, 
It's just the comparison yes. of the two sisters. Yeah. yeah. So they are more important than any other pair of sisters in Jane Austen, but the relationship is not about the relationship between them. It is about their relationships with others, which is never to question the fact that they have a very close relationship. Yes. Now, in terms of Willoughby's visit, it's fascinating. In 1971, the illness only appears to last for about a day, so how did Willoughby even know to yes. arrive in time? In 1981, where the illness has lasted several days, they made the, I think, somewhat odd decision that Willoughby hasn't come because he's learned that Marianne is sick. He's just come because he has to tell her. That's the one where the Willoughby is quite young and very charming, possibly the most charming of them, very engaging, and he is quite passionate and upset when he's talking to Eleanor in that one. In 1995, and of course a movie, not a miniseries, so much less time, but they made the decision to completely cut Willoughby's visit altogether. Uh, so most of Willoughby's backstory has actually come out earlier. Colonel Brandon was the one who said Willoughby did love Marianne and he was planning to propose. Yes. But, so yeah, no visit from Willoughby at all. And in the 2008 version, Willoughby comes, and it's because he heard Marianne was sick, the scene is quite abbreviated, and... Whereas I felt that the 1981 Willoughby was upset and passionate, the 2008 Willoughby came across more as angry and self-justifying. Yes. And the other thing with that one is that Marianne actually got out of bed and heard Willoughby talking to Eleanor, so Eleanor didn't need to tell her later. I guess that was about compressing the story. So that's that aspect of it. But the last thing I wanted to talk about was... Colonel Brandon during Marianne's recovery because I think every single person who has worked on any sort of adaptation and indeed some of the modernizations as well has been concerned about the fact that Colonel Brandon and Marianne getting together you're not given anything in the book it just happens later I'm actually going to just concentrate on the adaptations not so much the modernizations because they all take Slightly different, but also very similar approaches to it. Mm. And in many cases, it's about books. Oh, so what you have is, in the 1971 version, after Marianne has recovered, but before they've gone home to Barton, Mrs. Ashwood brings Colonel Brandon in to see Marianne, and it starts out the scene as them very awkward, and then it cuts to the end with the others coming in, and they're having this passionate discussion about books. And Colonel Brandon is recommending poetry to Marianne, such as Dunn and Marvell and Spencer, which I wasn't sure if they're really what young no, ladies no, in the 19th... 19... No, no, They were what everyone was being told to read in the 50s. Yeah. In the 1950s. Okay, well, this was 1971. So what you've got is this picture of her warming to Colonel Brandon over books. Then in the 1981 version, we again have a scene where before they've gone back to Barton, while Marianne is still in bed in this case she's not even up sitting in a chair in her room and he starts out by being a bit dismissive of gothic fiction which Marianne in this version has been reading which which I think she would already she would have been she would have already outgrown yeah she would have semi-outgrown it already yes but then he talks to her of the majestic Milton and the demigod Shakespeare which I thought was a bit Marianne would have been familiar with them. But then there's quite this nice bit where he says if she would let him, he'd like to select a book for her to read. And on the drive home, she says that he will guide her reading. And I think that is, it fits in with her I will read for six hours a day thing. But she is being very 
submissive. She's taking him as a mentor, yes. whereas he ought to be just a friend of the family. Yeah. yeah. To think that she hasn't read Shakespeare and yes, Milton exactly. is, is ridiculous. Yeah. Now, in 1995, you don't have any scene at Cleveland of him recommending books to her, but what you do have is when they're back at Barton, she's out in the garden sitting in a chair and he's reading aloud to her. And I had to look up to find out what it was he was reading aloud because I didn't recognise it. It's Spencer from The Fairy Queen. So again, what you have here is them connecting over books and it felt sharing rather than teaching, rather than educating. That is a parallel to, in this one back at the start, she and Willoughby were reading Shakespeare together. Yes. So, And the last one, the 2008 version takes it a little bit further because you may remember, I think when we were talking earlier, Michael said maybe Marianne just grows up and realises that Colonel Brandon is the romantic hero she's been looking for. And oh. that is the line they're taking in this 2008 version. Oh, right. Because... Yeah, he's the soldier with a sad past yes, and that. Yes, so when they're in the carriage going back to Barton... She's watching the colonel through the carriage window and she says that he is an exceptional man, what sadness he has known. He is the true romantic, I think. It's not what we say or feel that makes us what we are, it is what we do. That's rather sweet. And that is rather nice. And then she says that Colonel Brandon has said she can come to Delaford to use his library. And I thought, well, that's an awfully long way away. (laughs) Anyway, but the next scene you have is of him taking her into the library which also has a pianoforte in it and it's a little bit like in the Disney movie of Beauty and the Beast where she sees the Beast's magnificent library but then while she's in the library we cut to him outside with a hawk and they're giving him both the library and the pianoforte to fit her interests but also showing him hawking and her watching him do this and you have shots of the hawk flying and coming back to his wrist to also show him as the romantic hero. So, like I said, they all feel that it's very important to show a relationship developing and to a greater or lesser extent, they all have books as part of it. And as I was watching these one after another, I was suddenly thinking there are parallels here with Persuasion, both with Anne Elliot recommending more books to Benick to sort of widen his appreciation, which is what some of the Colonel Brandons are doing to Marianne, but also the Captain Bennick and Louisa Musgrove falling in love over poetry. Of course, it's different because Marianne is already into poetry, but there is that parallel that that's what they connect over. Yes. Which I thought, I found it effective, except in the ones where I felt it was a little bit too teacher-student. Yeah. listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be finishing up Sense and Sensibility with chapters 47 to 50. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.